Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. DACA is a good program and should go forward, and Donald Trump was wrong to end it, so says a federal judge appointed by George W. Bush. Another setback for the Trump White House. What do you say, folks? Hello, hello. It is Wednesday, Wednesday, April 25. So good to see you today. And thank you so much for joining us here, the Bill Press Show, live, as always, from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with a lot of news on a lot of fronts yesterday, uh, trouble on Capitol Hill for Ronnie Jackson, the president's nominee to be Veterans Affairs Secretary. Uh, maybe they should have done a little homework down at the White House before they put that nomination forward. A lot of fanfare at the White House yesterday with the uh, state visit of French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife Brigitte uh, uh, I was there for the news conference with the two presidents, and uh, there was a lot of news out of it. Uh, but uh, can the, I just say again, if you're not following us on Twitter, at BP Show, yeah, you're really you, missing out, because you, you gave uh, lots of good color from there at the uh, at the presser, including the star of the show. Including the star of the show, the hat. The hat. The hat. Everybody was watching wherever the hat went. When the hat walked in, man... The photos, the photographers were clicking away. Was it as magnificent as in person as I it think was? I think it's the stupidest damn hat I ever saw in my <laughs> okay, life. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Goddamn ugly hat. Embarrassing. Why don't you just go to Texas and get a cowboy hat? I've seen his hat. Anyhow, we got lots to talk about. And you've got lots to comment on. You know how to do it on Twitter, at BP Show. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, James Comey has a new book out. I don't know if you heard about this, Bill. He's got oh, a new really? book out, A Higher Loyalty, idea. Truth, Lies, and Leadership. Well, people really want to read it. It has sold more than 600,000 copies in all of its formats in its very first week. So it is a certified hit. It's number one on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, so people really want to hear James Comey's story. I guess that's the takeaway here. Yeah, it is. I, I have to tell you, you know, I read a lot of books. I, I'm not going to read that book because I felt I've already. I feel I've already read it. Yeah, you know. I mean, everything came out about it. He gave an I, interview that basically gave the whole book yeah, away. And his testimony last year. I mean, I'm not knocking it. All I'm saying sure. is I don't feel I have to read it because I know what's in it. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, we talked yesterday a little bit about how George H.W. Bush was hospitalized for a blood infection. Well, a spokesperson yesterday put out a statement saying that George W. Bush is George H.W. Bush is quote responding and recovering to treatment at a Houston hospital for the blood infection. So it looks like he's going to be okay this round. I remember Barbara Bush died but earlier not this out week. Yet. Not out yet. Not out yet, but they're saying that this is all very positive news. He wants to get up to Kenny Bunkport. I'm sure he does. Yeah. Who yeah. wouldn't, really? Right. right? Uh, and just a couple of, uh, we haven't talked much, much about the NBA playoffs, which are going on right now, but we, had, we saw some teams go out, left the playoffs yesterday. The 76ers beat the Miami Heat 104 to 91. That means they win that series four games to one. And, Bill, I'm sorry to say, the San Antonio Spurs are out of the playoffs. Whoa. The Warriors beat them. I was going to say, how are the Warriors doing? The Warriors won that round. They beat the Spurs four games to one. The Spurs at least won one game. <laughs> uh, so they didn't get completely swept. But uh, the Warriors look good. Uh, the 76ers look great. And by the way, uh, it's worth pointing out that Philadelphia legend, the rapper Meek Mill, got out of prison yesterday yeah. and was there right. at the game to ring the Liberty Bell, the yeah. fake Liberty Bell that they have before the game. So there was no way that the 76ers were going to lose that game. <laughs> there was no way. So yeah, that, it's, it was that, nice to see him out of jail. That was a moment, right? It really was a moment. I mean, look, we're we're, we're getting down to the uh, the final games here. The Celtics and the Bucks are still going on. The Wizards are still tied with the Raptors, two games to two. We'll see that game resume, uh, that series resume tonight. So... Does Meek Mill get to play? Uh, Meek Mill does not get to play, Bill. Oh. I'm sorry to say, but uh, I think that the 76ers have a new mascot. But this the Warriors are the are the, are the uh, champs, right? Defending uh, champs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. This is the Bill Press Show. DACA has new life today after a federal judge, a judge appointed by George W. Bush, says that the Trump administration decision to end it was capricious and arbitrary. Whoa. Another setback for the Trump White House. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Happy Wednesday. Here we go in the middle of the week of the Bill Press Show. For the next two hours, we will romp with you through the headlines of the day. And all the news of the day, it is happening on many, many fronts. Big state dinner at the White House last night. Joint news conference uh, between President uh, Trump and President Emmanuel Macron yesterday at the White House, which I attended. Uh, and it turns out the highlight of that news conference was really a lot of talk about the Iran deal. But that's not what got the headlines. The headlines got uh, were stolen by Donald Trump throwing, at least temporarily, VA Secretary nominee Ronnie Jackson, White House physician, under the bus, basically telling Ronnie to take his marbles and go home. Lots and lots to talk about. Lots you want to comment on. You know how to do it. Send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. As we come to you live coast to coast all across this great land of ours and all around the planet on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Of course, on Free Speech TV and in Radioland statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and all throughout the greater Chicago area uh, on the great WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago. 
Uh, welcome all and uh, get ready for a wild ride. Great guest today. We're going to be talking with some grassroots activists. This is where the action is taken, uh, taking place today at the grassroots level and particularly in Trump country. Uh, a couple of uh, leading grassroots activists uh, from People's Action and other organizations, including Down Home North Carolina, joining us uh, for the second half hour of the show today. Uh, and then we'll take a look at the Supreme Court. Big cases coming up in front of the Supreme Court, including the president's travel ban for the third time around, Elizabeth Widra from the Constitutional Accountability Center, and from Politico, foreign affairs correspondent Nahal Tuzi, uh, to uh, really take a look at what's left of the Iran nuclear deal uh, after uh, Donald Trump tries to thrash it and Emmanuel Macron tries to save it. Uh, we start today, yes, with this DACA ruling that came after we put the show to bed last night. That's what always happens. I mean, you know, we keep saying our uh, late afternoon conference call, we might as well forget it because we forget all the guests we got, all the topics we're going to talk <laughs> about, plan the show, and then, da, boom. It's, always. Yeah. yeah. Within always. an hour, it's you might as well just throw it away, right? But. So this DACA ruling came uh, uh, after the president's news conference yesterday and after the evening news even. A federal judge here in Washington, D.C., Judge John Burns, who is with the U.S. District Court of, of D.C., very important, very important federal bench, appointed by this judge, appointed by George W. Bush, uh, he ruled that the DREAMers program must go forward uh, that the administration must start um, not only renewing applications, which has been uh, ongoing, but allowing new people to apply to the program. So a program's got to go back, he says, back to op normal operation uh, renewals and new applications and protection for those in the DREAMers program. Uh, the judge said that when the pre for the president to do this, it was a capricious and arbitrary move that there was no uh, pressing need or compelling need to end the DREAMers program. The president did it again arbitrarily, uh, ending it and sending it to Congress and saying, pardon me, remember, you've got to fix it by March 5 or else the program's going to die. Uh, and the, this judge also said that the White House's arguments for defending the president, he said, were called them meager legal reasoning. Wow. Yeah. Coming again from a Republican judge, a very serious rebuke of the Trump administration. Now, the judge did say, okay, this is my ruling. I'm putting my ruling on hold for 90 days to allow the administration, this is kind of judge speak, if you will, but to allow the administration to appeal it, um, but so they'll have a chance to appeal his ruling. They have ninety days to get their case together, have a hearing, uh, and then he'll make his final ruling. But for now, that's what the judge uh, judge has ruled. It again a huge setback uh, for the Trump administration. And I would also say it's an open invitation for Congress once again to fix this. Congress has been basically been told by the judge. You know what you ought to do is you ought to just make this permanent and legal because it's a good program and it should go forward. Uh, if if there were any leadership in Congress, that's exactly what they would do. And we all know we've talked about this so many times. The votes are there.
for the Dreamers program among Republicans and Democrats. There are enough Republicans and certainly enough Democrats combined in the Senate and in the House to make this a permanent program, to give it a permanent status if Congress had any leadership. Sadly, it does not. You know, I, I, I just having this conversation with my kids earlier this week about how bad of a president Donald Trump is, right, which... Compounded by the fact that we got these idiots, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. Right, right. And so they yeah. were saying, like, oh, Donald Trump is the worst president ever. Donald Trump is the worst president ever. And I certainly don't disagree with that. But there is something to be said about the fact that he hasn't done anything and he can't get anything done. And there seems to be a little bit, not in every single case, but a little bit of like, an emergency plan for when he screws up, right? Like the DACA thing, I think we can all agree that was a royal screw up, not <laughs> right. only by Donald Trump, but by yeah. Republicans. But we do have the courts. And in this case, as you pointed out, a Republican judge yeah. stepped in and said, mm, no, that's not how this works. You know, you can't just throw these, as he said, arbitrary things out there that don't really mean anything, especially when you don't understand the law. You don't understand how DACA works. Right. And so it's sort of comforting in a way. Well, the courts have saved us on more yeah, than one occasion. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk later with Elizabeth Weider about the Supreme Court and this travel ban. But twice the courts have struck down the president's travel ban because it is a religious uh, it, it's a religious edict, basically. It's a d r r discrimination based on religion, which is... I mean, there's no doubt that that's not allowed under the Constitution of the United States. So for DACA, good news for now, you know, basically on hold for 90 days. But it does add weight to those who say this is a good program and should go forward. And then yesterday we go to the White House and the state visit of President Emmanuel Macron. I got to tell you, as far as I'm concerned, the whole day was summed up in that hat. I, I mean, I don't want to make too much of the hat. I just got to tell you, I thought it was the most ridiculous fashion statement ever, ever, ever seen, certainly ever seen at the White House. The First Lady walking out to greet the President of France and the First Lady of France, wearing this white outfit, white suit, which is very attractive. And then this, it, it wasn't a 10-gallon hat. It was like a 20-gallon hat. It's the biggest damn hat I ever saw on man or woman. It was the worst crime against fashion that we've seen at the White House since Barack Obama wore a wore tan, tan suit. suit. Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. right, Troy. And then the way she wore it down, it was down like to her eyebrows, right? Or right, and so it's like you couldn't see any of her forehead or any of her hair. I just thought it looked like, you know, it looked like somebody who goes to um, a cowboy ranch or some tourist stop in Texas, sure, and puts on a great big Stetson, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. too big for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they put it and on. It goes they over say, their eyes. Oh, and it comes. Thing. It comes down to the tip of their nose, and they say, "Well, obviously, this one's too big." Yeah, Melania didn't do that. It was too big. She didn't take it off and get a better one, right? I, 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 I know you're going to accuse me of being a sexist for this. I'm just saying. I thought it was really, really stupid. And then, and then that was bad enough. She wears this outside when they're walking in. But so I go to the news conference in the East Room of the White House yesterday, and we're all there. We're waiting for the presidents to arrive. And then in come the dignitaries, the vice president and Karen Pence and Wilbur Mills, the commerce secretary, and Steve Mnuchin and Kellyanne Conway and Steve Miller and Sarah Huckabee Sanders 
all the Trumpers are marching in and in. It's a murderer's row of murderer's row. Watching them to come in, I just wanted to vomit. And then in comes the first lady with that damn hat still on, and she sat in the middle of that crowd. Uh, you know, Steve Miller was sitting in back of her. Steve Miller, <laughs> seriously, he was leaning way over <laughs> so he could see the president because you couldn't see anything with it. What if you went to a movie and somebody like that sat in front of you? Sure. You'd have to take the damn hat off, right? <laughs> but she's the first lady of the United States. At any rate, and then the two presidents get into it. And, and let me tell you, and we'll talk more about the substance of what they talked about in the Iran nuclear deal with Nahatuzi from Politico uh, just a little bit later. But, you know, here, here's what I found really embarrassing. The contrast between Donald Trump trying to talk about Syria, trying to talk about Iran, making no sense at all, and then Emmanuel Macron in French and in English, who sounded like, first of all, he's brilliant. He knows the issues so well. And he is so eloquent. And, you know, Trump will just say, this is the worst deal ever. We never should have signed this deal or something. And then Macron will say, now, let me tell you what this deal is all about, why it's good, and why some of the things about it could be improved and why, instead of just throwing something out, and he said, and we'll find out what the president does. We don't know what he's going to do. But if he does throw it out, if he doesn't throw it out, what we all have to do is work on four pillars or four important points over there in the region. And here's one, and here's two, and here's three, and here's four, and here's why we have to. And, you know, Donald Trump is incapable of, not just incapable of explaining something that way, or talking about that. He's incapable of understanding it. <laughs> and he stood there. I sent out a couple of photos. He stood there with this goofball look on his face. He thought he was speaking French. He would. <laughs> he might as well have been speaking French. He would look over at <laughs> Macron as if, what are you saying, dude? <laughs> yeah, oh, God. It was embarrassing. Really, really embarrassing. Um, uh, and then the other thing is, is that the gestures. I mean, every, Trump kept turning around and trying to kiss him. You know the whole thing about a French kiss? I'm telling you, Macron is lucky he escaped without a French kiss. He got everything else. Donald Trump holding his hand. Donald Trump pulling his hand and pulling him along by the hand. Donald Trump wiping the dandruff off. Donald Trump really kissing him on the cheek and, and hugging up to him like this. Oh, God, it was disgusting. And then saying, I really like him. I really like him. I mean, it... I got that Macron kept his cool, but it was it was it was really awkward. Trump is a weird guy in that he way. Is. Like he tries to be super dominant. Yeah, you he's know? not a guy you want to hug. No, no, no. Yeah, no. He's like an, an aggressive hugger. Right. <laughs> so he yeah forces himself on you. A right. mugger. He's right. a mugger. So he says yesterday, yeah. Well, uh, we're glad to welcome France, and it's very fitting that uh, the France should be the first state visit. It is truly fitting that we're holding our first official state visit with the leader of America's oldest ally, the proud nation of France. The proud nation of France. It is fitting. They are our oldest ally. They have supported us against the British when nobody else would. We wouldn't be here today without the French. That is uh, absolutely the fact. Uh, and, of course, Donald Trump wants uh, Monsieur Macron 
to be to look perfect for the camera. So he spots a little bit of dandruff on <laughs> on the lapel of the president's suit. In fact, I'll get that little piece of dandruff for little piece. We have to make him perfect. He is perfect. <laughs> I, I mean. I, 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 like, I understand, right? Like, I would rather have someone tell me that I have, like, spinach in my teeth or something like that that just let me, or my fly is down, that let me walk around, right? But the cameras are there. You're both leaders of very important countries. You should maybe just wait. Now, look, I wasn't that close to the president, although I was as close as sure. I am to you, sure. right? Uh, but it wasn't like... It was snowy white on his suit. Right? No one's going to see a piece of dandruff. No, there was not like, you know, snowflakes of dandruff. There might have been one. Anyhow, uh, but Trump could not could not resist. And then they had the big state dinner last night. Um, very interesting. Uh, if you have a chance to take a look at the uh, guest list, uh, was, you know, somebody said Donald Trump invited his billionaire friends for dinner. That's kind of the way God. it was. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Donald Trump giving the uh, toast uh, uh, at the dinner. To President Macron and Brigitte, to the French delegation, and to every proud citizen of France, may our friendship grow even deeper. May our kinship grow even stronger. Wait, I didn't see. Did he? He didn't. I mean, he, he's not a drinker. No, he uses a glass of water. Ugh. Yeah, I know. No, oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm not going to knock him for not drinking. I know, I know. I just don't but. love it. <laughs> Nothing wrong with, at least for a toast. Yeah, for a toast. Take a little sip, right. A glass of wine. Uh, but he, he's a teetotaler, so good for him. Um, and uh, Emmanuel Macron <laughs> responding, uh, too bad the translator gets in the way here, but uh, at any rate, you'll get the point. Cette Maison Blanche... This White House, so full of history, that the British burned down in 1815, and I say this in the most amicable way, and that James Monroe then had the brilliant idea of decorating with French furniture. <laughs> I love that. So we're here to show the contrast. The British burned this house down, and then we filled it with fine French furniture. Yeah. I think that perfect. sort of sums up the yeah, relationship exactly. between the two countries. And I've seen that spot, and if you have any friends who ever work at the White House, you can see that spot. You can still see the chard over the doorway into the kitchen in the White House kitchen where the British, uh, evidence of the British burning the White House uh, in 1812. It's still stunning to think that a foreign enemy at the time was able to get into Washington and take over the White House and set fire to it. Um, so that was, uh, we'll talk more again about the substance of the Iran deal with Nahal Tuzi from uh, Politico a little bit later. Uh, that was the color of the, uh, of the White House, uh, of the news conference yesterday, until somebody asked the president about the troubles that Ronnie Jackson was having uh, uh, suddenly now that it looked like his nomination was going to sail through because everybody had said good things about the former White House physician, or maybe he still is. Um, I don't know whether he still holds that job or not. I guess he does. He hasn't been replaced. But anyway, it looked like he was going to sail through. And then there was a rocky road. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. Now we know more about exactly what those allegations were. Uh, so the president was asked about, is your nominee in trouble? And oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. The president went on for like five, six, seven minutes all over the place, uh, you know, 
uh, here they are. Yeah, my my you know, my notes from uh, standing there at the at the news conference yesterday, saying that he never met never met one of the finest people I have ever met. He said he didn't know anything about the allegations, but he kept saying he's one of the finest people I ever met. But then he said, I talked to him this morning, and I told him, and the president repeated over and over and over again, I told him, I don't know why you want this thing. I don't know why you would put yourself through it. I don't know why. Why do you need it? Here's the president saying what he told Ronnie Jackson. I really don't think personally he should do it, but it's totally his. I would stand behind him. Totally his decision. I don't think he should do it. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't think he should do it. And I keep asking him again. He said this over and over and over again. I told Admiral Jackson just a little while ago, I said, what do you need this for? This is a vicious group of people. Yeah. What do you need this for? I mean, what do you need? In other words, what is he doing? Get out of here. Get out of here. Yeah. And he says, so it's it's his decision. But if I were him, here's what I would do. If I were him, actually, in many ways, I'd love to be him. But the fact is, I wouldn't do it. No, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) No, he said that. So he said again, what do you need this for? What do you need it for? Uh, I wouldn't do it. He said, you're too fine. Reading from my notes, you're too fine a person for this. Um, He'll make his own decision, he said. But he said... I don't want to put a good man. I don't want a good. I don't want to put a good man through a process like this. Then he said again, "If I were him, I wouldn't do it. I don't personally think he should do it." Uh, you know how could uh, Ronnie Jackson survive after that? Everybody thought. I mean, we were. Uh, you know, you get used to hearing, expecting Donald Trump to say something outrageous. But I got to tell you. I'm, I know I'm speaking for every one of my colleagues who was in that room with me yesterday. We were stunned, stunned by hearing Donald Trump say that. So then, later in the day, Ronnie Jackson goes into the Oval Office. They have a meeting in the White House, in the Oval Office, and the White House puts out a statement saying the president is 100% behind Ronnie Jackson. He's not going to withdraw, and the president is 100% behind him. So how can you throw him under the bus in the morning and then be 100% behind him in the afternoon? Go figure. It just proves the White House doesn't know what the hell it's doing. And they did not vet this guy at all. So now let's talk about what the allegations are. There have been over 20 people who have come forward and said the guy has had some serious behavior problems in the job. Uh, There was an inspector general report way back in 2012 saying the White House doctor's office was really out of control, Ronnie Jackson, uh, in charge. There are reports that he would, so there's a very, that uh, toward his subordinates, he uh, was very cruel, very vindictive, um, bad management style, treating anybody who worked there other than the people who were over him, like the president. You know, kiss their ass. Uh, number one, that was one. Second problem was they said um, giving medications away like candy. That he would walk down the aisle when traveling with the president. Get this: when traveling with the president, walk down the aisle of the plane and say, um, "Anybody need some drugs? Anybody need some medication? Anybody needs?" 
giving out Ambien. That's my kind of doctor. Yeah, giving out Ambien and one I don't even know, Provokil? Mm, I'm, no? I'm not aware. Anyhow, so uh, Ambien puts you to sleep. Yeah. Provokil uh, is for wakefulness. Okay, Keeps you, all right. So, uppers and downers. Uppers and downers, yeah. right. And just handing them out. Now, do you need a prescription for Ambien? Yeah, you do. I think you do, right? Yeah, so these 100%. were prescription meds, which is one thing that uh, Senator John Tester has said. You know, with all this abuse of prescription drugs in this country and with this opioid crisis, you know, the last thing you need is a doctor who just gives them out to anybody just walking down the aisle. Yeah, just an Elvis doctor. No, well, Dr. Nick just handing things out. It's like the flight attendant handing out pretzels. Sure. You want pretzels, peanuts. You want <laughs> yeah, Ambien or Provacure. Which drug do you want? Just a big basket. Uppers or downers? Right. Which would you like? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was the second thing. And the third thing was drinking on the job. And there were two instances cited where apparently, um, well, two instances cited. One is that he was very drunk, about 4 o'clock in the morning, and he's banging on the hotel door uh, of some woman's hotel door, and the Secret Service had to stop him because they were afraid he was going to wake up Obama and who was down the hall and everybody else, and here's Ronnie Jackson banging on her door, drunk. Uh, another time when White House staff needed him to um, take care of the president, the president had whatever... Uh, and they went to his room, and he was passed out, drunk on his bed. Holy and cow. they just took some medications out of his room without even waking him up. That so, seems safe. Yeah, right. That seems safe. So, again, Senator Tester and others have made the point, if you're traveling with the president of the United States, and you're there in case the president of the United States, anything happens, and the doctor is, boom, there right away. Uh, if the doctor's dead drunk, um, there's something wrong with this picture here, right? That he's not on the job. Uh, serious, serious stuff. And over 20 people have come forward, Republicans and Democrats, to White House staff and military staff, to members of Congress, and have said that. Um, the um, Ronnie Jackson insists, he says, he told, he told uh, uh, senators he had never had a drink. He has never had a drink while on duty. You know what? <clears throat> Make a statement like that, you better be able to prove it. And if you got all these other people who saw him drinking while on duty, uh, I think. Look, He's not even going to get a hearing, is he? He might not even get a hearing. But I don't think there's any way that he can get confirmed after what the president said yesterday. I don't care how much the White House now says. They can't change their story like that. They, no. they really, really can't. Right. Um, hey, just one quick thing. I have to tell you, uh, some of you might have followed on Twitter last night, um, but I... Uh, had a chance to interview Governor Terry McAuliffe, former governor of Virginia, last night at our Great Hill Center here on Capitol Hill. Uh, and let me let me just say this: you've heard me say before, I don't want to talk about 2020 until we get through 2018, until we win back the House, we win back the Senate. But you can't help but look ahead about who might emerge in 2020. And you've also heard me say that I think that Republicans and Democrats do. Uh, maybe a better job when they're looking for presidential nominees when they look at governors. Governors work. Governors work for Republicans and Democrats. And look at them, Bill Clinton or George W. Bush, right? Uh, they work because they've had some experience, executive experience, have handled problems, and they're not from Washington, D.C. So 
after watching Terry McAuliffe last night and interviewing him, I got to tell you, uh, among among the many people who have to be taken seriously for 2020 is Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia. He's a hugely successful businessman. He did a great job as governor of Virginia. He is funny. He's articulate. He is passionate about the issues. He's got that great experience. Uh, and I think he could be uh, a major contender. All I'm saying is keep your eye on Terry McAuliffe. I think he'll be a player uh, in 20. Not the only one. A lot of other great people out there, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, our good friend Tim Ryan from Ohio, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, they're all great people, Amy Klobuchar. Um, keep your eye on Tim on uh, Terry McAuliffe as well. How are we going to do it in 2018? From the grassroots up, that's what I say. And let's talk about a couple of people who are very, very involved in that, uh, from People's Action and from down home, North Carolina. Coming up next here on The Bill Press Show. Quick break. We'll be right back. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. And welcome back here on this Wednesday, Wednesday, April 25, The the Bill Press Show. Booming out to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Where we're brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Yes, indeed, the great Teamsters Union. Members of the Teamsters under President Jim Hoffa. We all live better because of their good work. Encourage you to check out their website at teamster.org. President Hoffa going to be one of my guests at the White House Correspondents' Dinner this Saturday night, along with President Harold Schaitberger of the uh, Firefighters Union. Uh, good to see you. Don't forget you can uh, comment anytime on what we're talking about by sending us your comments on Twitter. Uh, at BP Show, and in fact, uh, so far, Peter, stirring up a little dust here. A couple of comments already on Dr. Ronnie Jackson. Oh, yes, indeed, yes. Joey says you put a doctor like that uh, in that position at the White House because he doesn't know how to actually doctor. He is essentially Dr. Nick from The Simpsons. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. He's like an Elvis <laughs> doctor. Uh, Amy Kelly says, uh, this dip, this dip, S, I can't say it. This dip S nominated this dude, Jackson, to be in the position. WTF. I think we all know what that means. And G. Kane talking about Donald Trump brushing the dandruff off of. uh, It was so weird. Uh, He says, Donald Trump claims to be a germaphobe, but then he brushed (laughs) off somebody else's dandruff, (laughs) which is a good point. Uh, yeah, right. He says he's a germaphobe, but then he mm. was so anyway. But don't don't look for any consistency here. Give no. us your comments uh, on Twitter at BP Show. By the way, just a footnote on Dr. Jackson. Uh, it's reported also this morning. Everybody in the White House opposed making that nomination, except yeah, who else? Yeah, who impulsively did it without vetting, of course. But John Kelly and anybody with any say in the White House uh, tried to talk him out of it. No, he's my buddy. We're going to make him VA secretary. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. But let's get to the issue of this half hour here, which is uh, um, I mentioned I interviewed Governor Terry McAuliffe last night uh, here at the Hill Center. Uh, And one of the things he and I talked about, and he agreed, I've never seen in uh, certainly maybe not since the anti-Vietnam War movement, uh, so much energy, so much passion, so much enthusiasm at the grassroots level as there is this year, and it's all on the progressive side, and it's making a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Even in Arizona last night, where the Democrat did not win the congressional seat, but in a, in a district 
that Donald Trump carried by 21 points and Mitt Romney carried by 25 points, uh, Democrats were able to get up and narrow that margin to just about five points yesterday in that very deep red seat. Uh, and here are two organizations with us today who are very much leaders in this uh, grassroots effort on the progressive side. Uh, Adam Krugel is with the People's Action, right? You're titled Director of Strategic Initiatives. Yeah. yeah. Whatever that means. You can tell yeah. us all about it. <laughs> well, uh, I'd applied right. for the uh, Director of Unstrategic Initiatives, oh. but apparently, yeah, that's all been filed. <laughs> yeah. I, I all those jobs have been filled. I could have gotten that Bill one. Bill right. was already in that position, so... And Keisha Pena is uh, from North Carolina with Down Home, Woo-hoo. North Carolina. Yes. Uh, I love it. Love that title. Where in North Carolina? I am in Mebane, North Carolina, Alamance County. Where is that? M- Mebane, M-E-B-A-N-E. Never heard of it. Yeah. I don't know about Most it. Most people no. call it Mebane. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So. Mebane. Mebane. And, yes. is, and, and you have two chapters, you said, in North Carolina? Yes, we have Alamance County chapter and the Haywood chapter, which is located in the mountains. In North Carolina. I'm, from, I, I'm from South Carolina, so we could have a whole conversation about North Carolina versus South Carolina barbecue, but that's a different conversation. Yeah, that's a that's totally, a, that's different, a totally different, conversation. different conversation. I don't know. Twelve. <laughs> I'm a mustard-based guy. Oh yeah, no. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. All I know is twelve fighting words. All I know is twelve bones. There you go. In Asheville. I have no idea even what that is. Uh, Asheville. In oh, okay. Asheville, North Carolina, when, okay. when President Obama went to Asheville, he mm-hmm. went right to 12 Bones, 12 bones. from okay. the Plains. Yeah, and Peter and I went to 12 Bones, and we went down to Asheville, too. Right. Okay, and um, People's Action is... Yeah. So what's the focus? What do you... Wh- well, you know, People's Action, we're a people's organization. We're one of the largest sort of, uh, pr- you know, a community organiza- organizing networks in the country. We have, th- we're, we have about a million members in 34 states, 600 organizers around the country, Whoa. and we're, we're building power for everyday people so that we can have enough power to really govern um, and have control over over our lives and begin to build a world where we really put people and planet first. So we're fighting for racial, economic, um, environmental, and gender justice all across the all across the uh, country. Now, you, you're in town today because there's this uh, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> a summit, r- Rural Progressive Strategy Summit. Yes, yes. So the focus is what? To focus on these rural areas? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. people say, well, the progressives all live in the big cities, right, on the two coasts. Exactly. And I guess you're saying no. No, no. I mean, you look at the history of this country, right? Like, it's been, I mean, obviously, every major powerful advancement in our country's history certainly in the last 100 years, it's been built around powerful urban-rural coalitions. You look at the New Deal, you look at the Great <coughs> Society, you look at the um, Civil Rights Movement. There's always been, even if we go further and you look at the history of the populist movements and the birth of the labor movement, it's always been folks, working people, um, like coming together from, from, for, from, from, from cities and farms. And you look at the mm-hmm. farm, farm worker, farm, farmer labor movement in, in, across the Midwest. That's always been a part of our history. And that's something that as a progressive movement, we've been neglecting and abandoning. And we've, we've paid dearly for it. But Keisha, so isn't is the, the problem that these people living in the rural areas are all Trumpers? Um, I don't think that's a problem. I think is it a reality? It is. It's it's a reality. Um, a lot I, of them are. A okay. lot of them are, but I think people. We were talking about this earlier. I think people needed another option, and Trump, you know, gave them an an option mm-hmm. that they felt like they had been missing out on, and he was speaking to people who were looking for something different, and you know that that's not a bad thing. 
Okay, so Hillary did not give them that option. Did not was not speaking. That was not her message, right? Right. Um, is the Democratic Party today uh, have a message to people who are living mm. in you know not in the big cities and rural areas? Uh, I don't feel like they had a message for me. Um, and I, I grew up in a rural town. I live in a rural area, Mebensboro. Um, I think that we we tend to forget about small towns. We we feel like, and like I said, we were talking about this before. I feel like they, the Democratic Party, automatically assumes that they have a certain group of people's votes, and mm-hmm. we are getting we are very much moving away from that. And people are concerned about specific things. And if you're not addressing those specific things like health care, education, things that people in rural towns are, you know, struggling with, then you're going to lose them. And just speaking to, you know, your own agenda is not going to work anymore. We have to have these conversations with people that are living in, in rural towns and small areas because they do show up and vote. And right now, people, I think, I feel like people are not buying just showing up and voting for, you know, one specific party mm-hmm. just because, you know, Democrat, Republican, I'm just rural town. Right. Gonna, yeah. yeah. So, so they're, they're so looking I, for another option. Adam, so what kind of a response are you getting? Oh, it's been it's been amazing. I think. Uh, can I just just your question is important. Two yeah, quick things. Yeah. One, what the Democratic Party and, and progressives in general, we do not have infrastructure in rural communities, and so we are losing the battle for people's hearts and minds. And we're not building trust. We're not showing up for people, and that's the number one thing we need to do. And the second thing when is when you say that, what do you oh, mean by that? You mean we're not knocking on people's doors. We're not building organization. We're not getting them involved in everyday democracy. But but the but they the right wing forces are they are everyday organizing. And yeah. they're and they're organizing in a much more effective strategic ways, and they're dominating in these rural communities, and they're not hearing our vision or message, and they don't trust people on the progressive side because they don't see you. You're not. We're not showing up for them where they live. We're not showing up for them on their issues. And I want to say one thing. Just at your question this is real important to remember. Rural people want. First of all, rural America is not white. Is not synonymous with all white people. It's incredibly diverse, right? Native most Americans, people, people, most, people don't understand that. It's very diverse. Don't know that yeah that's very diverse um largest you know it's you know it's always been diverse right it's like indigenous folks it's black folks it's but but so we have this image right but you know what the democratic party doesn't they don't have a message for poor people and working people and that's what rural america is rural america is working people people who live off the land and they and that that is where we are failing so it's like it is definitely we need infrastructure in rural communities but we need an agenda that speaks to all people that are struggling, that that are that are being crushed by this economy, an economic system, and a and a, and a system of like racial racial hierarchy mm-hmm. that's killing us. And so that's what the, that's what we're trying to say is we need a bold agenda, and we need to build power with people where the sense. No, it makes total sense yeah. to me. No. Oh, uh, and you're gonna abs- you were saying how's it going? It is going. Ama- it's been amazing. I'm gonna tell. Two quick stories. Okay. One is about, I want to talk about Down Home, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're hearing across the country. So Down Home, new organization, birthed out of the sort of tragedy of 2016, but folks have, are really doing, they, like, this, have this awakening that we, we will never get free if we're not building power in Alamance County and Haywood County and all the places that have been abandoned. And so just in, in eight months, 
They've built multiple chapters. They are they are taking the fight to to big corporations and corporate power. They passed for the first time in a county in Haywood County. This this is real. Haywood County, Trump won by almost thirty five points in this county. Right? <clears throat> they passed within three months. They passed the first ever living wage policy for for in Haywood County for for public workers in Waynesville in the history of rural North Carolina. They did that in three months. Mm. Because people are so hungry and they're organizing, mm-hmm. and when they and and I just want to maybe turn it over to Keisha. Like when you when you were out knocking on doors, they knocked on four thousand doors. They 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 documented over uh, fourteen hundred conversations. What was the what was the refrain you heard most often on the doors? You all named the report after that. Oh, no one's ever asked me before. <laughs> is the really? name of our report because one of our our members in Haywood. I guess when they knocked on her door and we're, we had a, a survey of issues, you know, that mattered to you most. Um, and Sam is her name, and she said that, yeah, no one's ever asked me any of these things before. And it's like, this is who you're you're pandering to, but you're not listening mm. to people. Mm. And that's what I learned. Like, people are ready to talk. People are looking for someone to listen. And when you open your ears and you open your heart, you're gonna get to the core of what people need and then you have to take action with that. You can't just listen and oh, it's good for yeah. a report. Now you have now we have this information, and now we have to deliver on what the people need, like education, healthcare, guaranteed healthcare for all. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. people are really scared of losing their healthcare, losing their Medicaid, and like we, we those are things that I feel like in America we should not be afraid of losing. You know, um, access to good food, access to clean water. You know, that is ridiculous to me that we are even having these having to have these conversations and and ask for these things. But one thing as an organizer to to me that that um, I think it strikes me about this in the areas that where you're active, like this Mm -hmm. county, you mentioned Uh you knocked on 4000 doors or and you had 1400. What was it? Conversations, yeah. Mm-hmm. Conversations, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and you were able to affect change. That's mm-hmm. relatively a small universe, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. this is doable. Yeah, I yeah. guess is the point I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas well, you go to a Chicago area, or you know, even Washington D.C. or San Francisco, L.A. or whatever places where I've been active yeah. uh, in politics, and you're talking about reaching trying to reach hundreds of thousands of people or tens yeah. of thousands of people and mobilizing all of this. On a smaller scale, you can really kind of get, oh, man. get, get things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still hard work, and it's still determined work. It's got to be organized, but it's it's doable, right? Yeah. Uh, and particularly North Carolina, I think, is such an exciting state. So we were, um, over years, on the air in Asheville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the part of the state yeah. we know. But like Reverend William Barber, mm-hmm. Uh, who's done this? The Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina. We mm-hmm. know, and we know that Barack Obama carried North Carolina. I mean, North Carolina is on the verge of being a a really progressive state, right? I'm a learning blue that state. we are very important, and yeah, absolutely, um, and the potential there. I think it's right on the cusp. Yep. You know, of moving forward. So, what I think the work you're doing in North Carolina is so extremely important. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. 
And the and what Down Home is doing and what, what groups that we're working with as part of this movement all over the country are doing is they're going to the places in North Carolina, but we're doing this in Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all over the country, going to there in North Carolina, they're going to the places where no one else is going and because that's the missing piece, right? Like a lot of the major cities we're organizing, people are with us, we're making an impact, but it's these it's these rural areas and you're never right. gonna build enough power in North Carolina. If we don't, if we don't have both and right, we need both the uh, urban and, and rural. Are, these are areas that the Democrats have largely historically ignored. <laughs> no, I mean not always historically, yeah. because obviously you mentioned mm-hmm. FDR, the long history, yeah, you know, FDR. and, and yeah. LBJ and uh, and others. But last thirty, the more forty modern years, Democratic yep. Party has just yep. kind of ignored those guys and written them off. I, I know, I was Democratic chair of California at one time. Okay, and and a lot of people just said, you know, don't even worry about. You know the Central Valley, or just 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 don't yeah. even campaign there. Don't even have oh. candidates there, which was insane. And but how did we turn California from red to blue? It was it was when we began when we we had to be able to close the margins because I I, I I organized in California for 15 years, and I was organizing in San Francisco, and I was tired of talking to the same people. You had an organization on every block. Mm-hmm. And we had nobody in Fresno, nobody in the poorest places. San Joaquin Valley, it's the most prosperous agricultural region in the history of the planet. And if it were a state, it'd be the poorest state in the union. And you take that, that's, that's, that's like the rest of the country. And that's the only way we turned California from red to blue was by investing in those kind of places so we could at least contend. We may not win every election, but we at least yeah. have to contend for people's hearts and minds. And when we do that and we fight for people in all the places, all the people in all the places, we can win. Um, I'm going to interrupt for just a second. I want to get back to your. <laughs> no, I want to get back to your second example you, yeah. you mentioned. But first, I just want to interrupt too. People, um, we don't have that much time together. So people who want to know more, people mm-hmm. who want to get involved uh, around the country, whether they're watching us on television or listening on the radio or following us online, how can they reach you? How can they find out more? But, yeah. So now's the time for a plug for we your website. Plug it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about Down Home, downhomenc.org is our website. And we have a Facebook page, Down Home North Carolina. We have um, the Alamance chapter is Down Home NC Alamance chapter and Down Home NC Haywood chapter. Okay, but downhomenc.org kind of can people can go. Yes, and that mm-hmm. you that is where you can find our report um, from our conversations. This is This is from... The, oh, the collective. We've got your copy. Um, okay. But our 30-page report from all of our conversations yeah. and the statistics uh-huh. the data is on our website at downhomenc.org. Downhomenc.org. Yes. You know, what we need is a downhomeeverystate.org, you know, like yeah. downhomedelaware.org, downhome, yeah, downhome yeah. you know, every state. Well, that's what we're work, building. Yeah, so, so okay. peoplesaction.org, peoplesaction.org. And so Down Home is a member of, of a national movement called, a national organization called peoplesaction.org. We have chapters in 34 uh, states. We have powerful organizing in 34 states, and we're growing. We're trying to get to all 50, and then we're going global. But we, um, if people go to our website, you can also just look online and see a map of all the different organizations and how to get and involved. And how you can plug in. Yep, exactly. Right. Powerful. Okay. Every day of the week in each of those states, there's something. People are, people are organizing, meeting, working together. And so it's a great, yeah, it's a great source of information. And you can also find the Down Home Report and our report on our website as well. So this, this is all part of the revolution, part of the That's resistance. Right. It's, it's, really, it's really happening. It's very, very exciting. I mean, oh, it's I, happening. I, oh, it's, oh, it's no, happening. It, it, no, it really is. Um, 
downhomenc.org or peoplesaction.org. So you're going to mention a second example, if you recall, uh, when I ask you how what kind of response you're getting around oh, the yeah. country. One was <clears throat> North Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina is very clear. Been telling us about. Well, another area. Yeah, where? so so we then we took the we learned from North Carolina and then we took their sort of the, the parts of, of how they were building and documenting these conversations because we really want to learn, right, of what's happening. So we did it over in, in over ten states. We're gonna be doing ten thousand conversations and we've identified seventy two counties where we're building it's like you you were saying this earlier it's like we need to focus and get it at so we can get to scale we don't need we we can need we can do this it's doable 72 so real mm-hmm. quick pivot counties super important for us to understand Trump won 207 pivot counties that had voted for Obama and flipped right to Trump because and and what we're doing is we're building in 72 counties where people are suffering in across 10 states and we're building power in these counties of the 72 counties, Trump won 64, and he won most of them, 52 of them he won by over over 10 points, right? But we've been out, so we've been building in this with this group of people. We've been just listening, starting just by listening and building relationships. And when we listen, what we heard is that people, what they, they care most about, 82% of the people we talk to, they, they want free universal health care. And this is, in, this is in the counties that went for Trump. Universal health care, free higher education. Mm-hmm. They want clean energy. They want they want jobs. They want to be able to protect the land and the water and the, and the air, and and so. Um, so would those oh, people have Bur- <clears throat> would those people have have voted for Bernie Sanders? So, I would say um, you know I don't want to. Uh, there is a significant portion of those people in those counties, the people that we talk to, they will vote and support a bold progressive agenda. And 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 you know the you know the data shows that that there are that um, that that Sanders performed very well in those <coughs> places, but an agenda like that. But also, we also saw Bill that people in those communities they are very 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 eager to have a conversation about race in our country, and I think that's something we're seeing is that we need to have a bold agenda <coughs> and we need to be have a race conscious agenda and we need to be building there's the opportunity to build powerful multiracial coalitions in rural communities and also in ur- between urban and air er- urban and rural communities in states across we, the union you know i i don't know it well enough that i could spout off the numbers but i remember seeing that map mm-hmm. of um counties yeah now the, the pivots true yeah. hillary clinton got three million more votes than donald trump did she won the popular vote but when you look at the counties it's stark yeah uh, the number of counties compared that Donald Trump won compared to what Hillary Clinton won. This is a map in our report. It's a map of where we've gone from 1996 to 2016 in terms of counties that are not competitive where the where the so you look at look at this look at this red map this is all the counties where we are where republicans are winning by more than 20 points right we right. cannot build governing power in our country or our state if we are not contending in all the places absolutely it doesn't work yeah right so you're identifying these you know yep. these counties that were neglected exactly basically by the party a democratic party in 2016 yeah um just about a minute left but are you identifying so in in those counties are you also identifying like congressional districts? Yep. Yeah. Got and 34 that we're working in right now. In 34 congressional yeah, in districts 72 in those counties. Yep. Yeah. Okay. 34, right? Democrats need 23. Talk to me. Yep. To take back the House of Representatives. We so, are radically expanding the map of of what we contend for power, but we got to like you said, we've got to we got to talk to people and we've so, got to listen. So the two of you 
could deliver a control of the House of Representatives. In no pressure, man. In no. You know what, though? <laughs> Real talk. But this is not, I want to be clear, Bill, to, for your listeners. This is not about a blue wave. Yeah. This is about a radical, we, we need to, people, if a bold agenda where we're putting people and planet first, that's, first. and we're giving power to the people, and the Democratic Party needs to have a real, like, we, we work closely with Keith Ellison, Pramila Jayapal, yeah. folks like that. They need to follow that kind of leadership. That's the way forward. You got it. All right. Say thanks so much for what you're doing. Thanks for coming in. Keisha Pena, downhomenc.org, Adam Krugel, peoplesaction.org. Great work, guys. Keep it up. Thank you. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Donald Trump throws Ronnie Jackson under the bus. Can he possibly survive after the president says, if I were him, I wouldn't do it. Hello, everybody. What do you say on a Wednesday, April 25? Hello, hello. Great to see you today. It is The Bill Press Show coming to you live as always from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and our little studio right here on Capitol Hill in the heart of the action. Uh, a lot of action on the Hill yesterday, but most of the action down at the White House with the first official a state visit um, for the under the Trump administration, uh, an honor awarded to our oldest ally, rightfully so, uh, to the nation of France and its president, Emmanuel Macron, his wife, First Lady of France, Brigitte Macron, at the White House yesterday for uh, meetings with the president, a joint news conference, which I attended, um, the scene stolen by the comments about Ronnie Jackson, uh, and then the state dinner last night. Uh, but the, what, the news conference that was not talking about Ronnie Jackson was talking about the Iran nuclear deal and whether that is going to survive past May 12. Now, Hal Tuzi covers foreign policy for Politico and joins us in studio to talk about that and other important foreign policy issues. Good morning, Nahal. Nice to Good see you. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks uh, for it was me. very interesting to see these two leaders jockeying about their position on the deal yesterday, which we'll have a chance to uh, to talk more about. Uh, we'll cover all the uh, these issues, and then uh, Elizabeth Widra from the Constitutional Accountability Center is joining us a little bit later. Uh, to talk about the Supreme Court's big uh, case coming up on immigration, on the on the travel ban. So we'll jump right into that. Look forward to your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. But first. No? There it is. Yes? No? Did I? Court I'm still hungover from the state dinner last night. That was oh, my I'm fault. Sorry. That was yeah, my right. fault. Hey, today's the day for anybody that uses Gmail, which a lot of people do. Uh, according to 1.4 billion people use Gmail. Today, they're going to be rolling out 
some big changes. We saw some of these leaked earlier, but basically Google has just uh, like come out and said they're trying to make this easier for businesses to use. A lot of people just use it, right? Mm -hmm. Some people even use it as their business email uh, client. Uh, but for anybody who's using it, there are going to be some big changes. What kind of changes will we see? Well, there will be a confidential mode where you can send stuff out that you, uh, information that you want to be confidential. You can set an expiration date on the email. So it will uh, delete from somebody else's inbox after you send it. Plus, you can set up email snoozing, nudging. If somebody hasn't responded to your email, you can give them a polite little nudge i like that to answer yeah, the emails like back yeah so it, again this all gets back to the point that they're just saying like we want to run this more like a business email client so you can expect to see those rolling out today if it's been like how gmail <laughs> usually does stuff it'll be sort of a slower rollout some people will get it first and then we'll see it over the next couple of days and weeks some sad news the u.s fish and wildlife service uh, put out a review of uh, the, the uh, endangered red wolves, and they said that it's going to be wiped out within about a decade. They have dwindled down to about a few dozen wild red wolves here in America, and that nobody's really doing a whole lot to conserve them. I mean, they are endangered, so you, it's not like you can do anything, but uh, there are only about 40 wolves that remain in the wild. Uh, which is down from about 120 a decade ago. So we're going to see red wolves get completely uh, obliterated here. Yeah, you hear a lot about gray wolves. I never hear about red wolves. Yeah, they said that the population essentially can't recover from their losses, and this is a steadily declining population, and they, I mean, it's not one of those things that you can really control because they're red yeah. wolves. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a bummer. I hate to end it on a, on a down note, but that sucks. What? I'm surprised we're not doing more about it. So I'll sure. I'll yeah. Look into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Ronnie Jackson, can he survive? It was a roller coaster day yesterday when the president first said, if I were him, I wouldn't do it. I hate to put somebody through that process. Nope. Uh, I don't know why he needs it. And then later in the day, the president saying, I stand 100 percent behind him. Which is it, Mr. President? Get it straight. But uh, new allegations make it a very rocky road for the nominee to be a Veterans Affairs Secretary. Hello, everybody. It's the Wednesday edition of the Bill Press Show. Here we are. We're starting out in Washington, D.C., but we join you wherever you are uh, across this great land of ours and around the planet, uh, joining you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show, joining you on the great radio station at WCPT out in the Chicago area, Hello, hello, and Radioland and on television, joining you on Free Speech TV. Again, looking forward to your comments on Twitter, at uh, BP Show. So, um, Hey, can I mention something really quickly? Uh, please. If you're, if you're not listening or watching the show live, which is fine. I mean, we wish that yeah. you would, but if you can't, we understand. We do put the podcast up Thank every single day. Every single us. day. Yep. Uh, and you got to go subscribe 
You'll get it right after the show. There's some stuff that we do on the show that not everybody can listen to because of the way that the stations are set up. So you miss some content, even if you do listen to the whole show live in Chicago or mm-hmm. Indiana or wherever. So just just go check it out. Look for the Bill Price Show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Hit subscribe. And we also are putting out some stuff on the weekends that you can't hear during the regular show. For example, we had our 420 show, which is still up. If you want to go listen to our 420 show where uh, mm-hmm. – uh, we all got pretty baked for 420 and uh, talked about pot. So go check it out. <laughs> and we did some dabs. Well, one person did. One person did dab. I didn't dabs. do a dab. I wasn't brave enough to do uh, a dab. Neither was I. I never will be brave enough to do a no. dab. No. But at any rate. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, go, go to the podcast, check out the podcast, and subscribe uh, once you get there. Uh, so the it looks like Emmanuel Macron was um, delegated by the leaders of the European Union uh, and those who signed the Iran uh, nuclear deal with the United States, he was given the job of, okay, you go to Washington and you convince Donald Trump not to pull out of it. Um, how did he did he succeed? How did he do? Mahal Tuzi covers uh, the foreign affairs of foreign policy for Politico and joining us in studio. Uh, did he make the sale? Well, um, I'm going to use one of Trump's <laughs> favorite phrases to answer that question. We'll see what happens. That's what he said yesterday. Right? Many, many times. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was really interesting because Macron, I hope I'm pronouncing that you correctly. You are. Uh, was, uh, you know, he kind of laid out this idea yesterday of keeping the existing Iran deal, but building on it and having a newer, bigger deal. Um, a nouvel accord. <laughs> he kept, that's what he kept saying. A nouvel accord. A nouvel accord. Um, and and saying that he was trying to almost uh, spin this to Trump as his way of making a mark uh, on this whole overall nuclear issue, and not just on the nuclear issue, but Macron was suggesting making this, I'm going to use the words, grand bargain, Mm -hmm. um, that deals with everything, you know, from what Iran is doing in Yemen to Syria uh, to its ballistic missiles to its future nuclear activities beyond what the existing deal covers. and Trump, you know, he did not completely dismiss the idea. He, in fact, signaled a little bit of openness to it. He said, you know, nobody really knows what I'm going to do. Um, it's possible he doesn't even know yet. Uh, and so, you know, it's possible that Macron may have made some progress um, during these discussions. But with this president, oftentimes it kind of comes down to the last minute. Uh, so once again, we'll see. <laughs> it was uh, I, I was there in the East Room yesterday. It, it was striking. First of all, I just have to say to see the level of uh, understanding, intelligence, engagement dealing with these issues, the contrast between Trump and Macron. I mean, you know, the most Donald Trump could say was, that's a bad deal. We never should have made this deal in the first place. This is terrible, terrible. I don't know what I'm going to do, but oh, God, this was such bad. You know, I mean, so superficial, right? And then Macron gets his turn and he says, no, we have to understand this, what this is all about, right? And yes, it was not. It's not the perfect deal, because there are so many issues that were not contained in it. But maybe, perhaps, instead of throwing that away, what we should do is consider a nouvel accord, and we could, so we could keep that deal sort of, but build on it. And then he said there are four essential pillars. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, he explained all of this. He knows it in depth. He was really, really impressive, right? And again, Trump, not having a clue, but. He's the guy who has the power to to make the decision. But Macron seemed to be saying, 
Yeah, don't throw the baby, baby out with the bathwater. It's not a perfect deal. Uh, there are issues, by the way, at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, where this possibility was raised, oh, if we're making a deal with Iran, we should really include Syria and Yemen and whatever, right? Iraq the, and everything. The Americans being held the Americans prisoner being held in prisoner. Iran. Yeah, yeah, right. That sort of All thing. of that should be included. And John Kerry and others at the time said one thing at a time, basically. If we can get them to do to hold off on nuclear weapons for production for like 15 years, let's get that deal done, and then we'll deal with the other things. Uh, right? And, and McCormell saying, well, yeah, maybe they should have done it differently at the time, but now we can... Now we can maybe address some of those other issues. Well, I think we got to remember a few things. One is that you know this deal it didn't it didn't like happen overnight. The existing nuclear deal it took years to come together, um, and it came together finally in July of 2015. And over time, other things happened. The Arab Spring happened, for instance. Um, there were you know Syria is part of that, but you know it became much more complicated. But by the time that this deal like came together in the end. It, it would have been very difficult to suddenly bring in all these other issues yeah, uh, and try yeah. to negotiate no, I, on them. One of the things I was really struck no, by yesterday— I, I think they did. I think they made the right decision with the deal, is that this was huge to get Iran to agree to this. And, and to hold—not to take that, right, and wait until you had every other problem on the, under the sun resolved was pipe, a pipe dream. Well, I believe. But, but, you know, like I, I was I was really struck by something that the president said yesterday. President Trump, he was saying, well, it should have covered Yemen. Well, the conflict in Yemen began in March 2015 um, <laughs> and the deal was unveiled in July. So, I mean, he was almost like suggesting that the deal should have covered things that oh. hadn't even happened yet. <laughs> yeah. And that was that was really striking. But it also speaks to the depth of his frustration with Iran's activities in the region and, you know, some of the things that the Iranians are doing that have really upset not just the Americans, but, you know, the Europeans and, and a lot of other people. Um, so, you know, I think that the Iranians don't necessarily help their case with Trump when they do some of these things in Syria and elsewhere. At the same time, you have to understand the limits that come with trying to negotiate a major international agreement involving a bunch of different countries, including, let's not forget, China and Russia, which is one other thing I would like to point out about the Macron idea. He's like, look, let's let's, you know, come up with something that addresses all this stuff, you know, including Syria, Yemen and, and these other regional interests that Iran has. And he's acting as if or he's maybe perhaps not mentioning that when it even when it comes to a big deal like that, you're still going to have to, you know, Ask for something from the Iranians, and they're going to want something back. So, what are you going to get that's going to make the Iranians happy as well? What kind of concessions are, are, is the West but, going to give to plus Iran? Plus, you have to get the other Western partners to agree too, correct? Right, and and also or not just Western, but China, China, China and Russia. Tri yeah, China I mean, and Russia. Yes. Remember, because the Security Council, but also like Russia has just as many. Well, depends on how you put it, but Russia has a lot of interests in Syria too. So, is it going to, you know? stand around and let Iran make some sort of a deal on Syria that it doesn't, I, I, you know, these are, but I think, but, you know, here's what I think Macron is doing. He's buying time, okay? He wants this particular existing deal to stay intact, and so he's convincing Trump, let's take this step by step. Let's keep this for now, and then we can address this other stuff. He knows that by the time it becomes a reality, I mean, even if Trump is in his second right. term, like, it probably won't happen by then. So um, a couple of quick questions. If 
if the United States pulls out, or if Donald Trump does not sign it by May 12, right? Mm-hmm. What happens to the deal? Does it totally collapse? Ooh. So I'm going to take this opportunity to plug a story that I should have running very soon. Okay. If my editor will get to it. All right. Come um, on, editor. <laughs> What's your editor's name? Let's call no, him out. No, 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 no. No naming, no naming. Um, but look, here's the thing. It's actually not as crazy as people think. There's a lot of people who've put out May 12th as this date, like make or break, yeah. you know. But actually, it's it, this is not really that important of a date in the grand scheme of things. There's only a small number of sanctions that come up for uh, review under this uh, under uh, May 12th deadline, right? So Trump could reimpose these sanctions. He technically could be would be in violation of the agreement, okay? But he might say, you know what? We're, but we're going to stay in the agreement. We're going to try to work this out at least mm. for a little while longer. Why? Because a whole bunch more sanctions come up two months later oh, for renewal. Yeah. It's that July date uh-huh. in which a ton of new sanctions come up. That's actually a bigger deal. But so there are some people out there that are suggesting that Trump go ahead and impose these first set of sanctions again, stay in violation of the deal. But p- that puts Iran and the Europeans under pressure to come up with something that satisfy him, f- satisfies him before before the July. Yeah. Right. And let's not so, forget one thing. This this agreement is a political arrangement. It's not a treaty. It's not a legally binding document. Everybody kind of can define in their own way what it means to stay in the deal or to leave it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. whenever everybody's saying like people are going to walk away from the deal, I'm like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So so uh, it doesn't mean that Iran will turn around right away and start building nuclear weapons? Not necessarily at all. I mean, you know, there's been some uh, sense that it wants to go ahead and continue staying in this deal with the Europeans because it's European businesses that it cares about. The Americans still have so many sanctions on Iran that the U.S., that nobody from the U.S. can really do business in Iran. So it's Europe that that Iran cares about. Right. And so on May 12, these sanctions, the president, these are U.S. sanctions, Right. Right. But they're not every every country is not bound by them. This is just well, U.S. sanctions. But here's the tricky thing: they're secondary sanctions, yeah, and they are, they affect Iran's oil market. Oh, the the basic aspect of the sanctions is that they go after businesses or financial institutions in other countries, like in European countries, that do business with Iran's central bank. And because Iran requires oil purchases to go through its central bank, that effectively targets Iran's oil sector. These are secondary sanctions, so countries in Europe won't do business with Iran. That's where the U.S. sanctions have real bite in this Mm -hmm. particular deal. But there are provisions within the statute that allow for, like, exemptions, and Trump can say... I'm going to reimpose these sanctions, but it won't take effect for like another six months. So, so that gives people even more time to try to work on the deal. Right. Now, related, as you pointed out, is Syria. So there's a question. I'd just like to read you the president's response yesterday because I was standing there and I, I must admit, I thought, what did he just say? So the question was, um, one of his first questions, I think, you said you want to bring the troops home from Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... At least President Macron says, I talked to him and he agreed not to do that because we need to have some American troops there. So the question was, so what are you going to do? Are you going to bring them home or not? Right. Quote, there's this couple of paragraphs here, but just so people get the drift of this is the president of the United States clarifying exactly what his position is on Making Syria. it very clear. Making I'm it sure. very clear. Right. As far as Syria is concerned, I would love to get out. 
I would love to bring our incredible warriors back home. They've done a great job. We've essentially just absolutely obliterated ISIS in Iraq and in Syria, and we've done a big favor to neighboring countries, frankly, but we've also done a favor for our country. With that being said, Emmanuel and myself have discussed the fact that we don't want to give Iran open season to the Mediterranean, especially since we really control it to a large extent. We really have controlled it, and, we are, and we've set control on it. So we'll see what happens. But we're going to be coming home relatively soon. We finished, at least almost, our work with respect to ISIS in Syria, ISIS in Iraq, and we've done a job that nobody else has been able to do. With that being said, I do want to come home, but I want to come home also with having accomplished what we have to accomplish. Uh. Crystal clear. Now... <laughs> What does that mean? When are the troops coming home? Well, okay. Let me let me try to like channel the president for a second, okay? He understands and a lot of people understand that it's not like the troops are a monolithic thing, right? So we can bring some of our troops home but leave special forces, other, you know, more specialized units uh to deal with some of what's left there. I mean, it doesn't have to be either or. And I'm pretty confident that there is a way to find a solution that makes him happy um, and makes the French happy. So, I mean, I, am I being, what, like you're looking at me funny. Well, I'm looking at funny. I mean, I'm just saying that's not what he said. I mean, we don't, I, you cannot, as far as I'm concerned, you cannot tell at the end of that anything, whether the troops are coming home or when they're coming home or why they're coming home or whether any stay or leave or what their mission is, or it's just gobbledygook. You know, but, I think, you know, sometimes he yeah, has, he, he struggles to kind of articulate some of these things, but they are very complicated issues. I mean, even like the most sophisticated speaker, you know, would have a tough time trying to explain Syria. I mean, you know, I, I, I was on a show the other day and I was like, well, you know, there's two wars going on in Syria. And another person was like, what are you talking about? There's like 20 wars going on in Syria. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to keep it simple. So. <laughs> Well, we didn't get any answer on that. Um, there wasn't much talk maybe yesterday. There wasn't any talk, as far as I remember, perhaps because Macron is not involved. Um, are we going to have a summit with uh, the leader? Of, well, first of all, let's talk about what the president said about his buddy. Very honorable. <laughs> former Rocket Man. He called, once called him Rocket Man. Yesterday he had a, a little different um, way of describing uh <laughs> I'll let him say the man's name because he says it so well. Kim Jong-un, was uh, he really has been uh, very open and I think very honorable from everything we're seeing. Is this a guy who assassinates his relatives or any political <laughs> opponents, starving the people of North Korea so, um, so they could build all these missiles, right, and nuclear weapons, and called them Rocket Man last year. We're going to obliterate the country. Yesterday, I mean, he he's... literally has gulags in his country. Yeah, yeah. And now, yesterday, he's a very honorable man. Well, Mark Antony also said that Brutus was an honorable man. <laughs> so maybe this is a setup. Oh, you think so? <laughs> With the assassination? <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but I, I just, I'm just saying, you know, Trump, Trump, he likes to be flattered, and I think he believes that's, you know, the way to get certain people on his side, even some of the the brutal dictators of the world is to flatter them. And he might not be entirely wrong. I mean, this might oh. be a work, workable appeal to 
Kim's ego. Well, first of all, when it comes to Kim Jong Un, or I'm sorry, Kim Jong Un, <laughs> um, you bet he loves this attention that he's getting, right? I mean, he is basically Trump has made him a almost an equal partner, right? Well, that's what a lot of people are saying is the fact that the, the president's even willing to meet with Kim at this early stage is a huge concession to the North Koreans who have always wanted to be viewed as, you know, an equal and nuclear power. And the fact that they're sitting to me, the fact that they're sitting down at the table, no matter what Donald Trump says, means that we recognize North Korea as part of the nuclear club. I mean, the, the administration is not going to agree no, with you on no, that. No, but I think in effect, that's what it means. And I think that's the way Kim Jong-un sees it. But here's the thing. I mean, does anybody really think that North Korea is going to give up its nuclear weapons like Donald Donald Trump said yesterday, denuclearization. And somebody said, what do you mean by that? And he said, no, I've got my notes somewhere. No more nukes, right? He's insane. I mean, that's not going to happen. Kim is insane. No, Donald Trump is insane insane by thinking that. (laughs) Well, both can be insane. Well, that's fair. But meaning if, if... I think you just said it. If anybody thinks that North Korea is going to give up totally its nuclear weapons program, they're crazy. It's hard to imagine them doing that given the way that they view the threats around them. They view the U.S. as a threat. They view South Korea as a threat. You know, they they don't care for Japan. I mean, this is not they, – they no. see themselves as surrounded um, and it's – you know, they feel but, like this This is something they have to have. I mean, if, it's the type of thinking that's going to take centuries or generations to really change, and I don't... But they also see what happened to Muammar Gaddafi. Right. Right? Right. It's he not gave up well his nuclear him. weapons, and he died in a sewer ditch, and we didn't do anything to save him. But Gaddafi him. did a lot of other things, he too. Did. Well, so is this... <laughs> it wasn't, like, it so wasn't is, like he gave up his nuclear weapons, and then he was immediately killed. But so is killed. this guy. Um, but, I mean... Done a lot of other things. You could argue so, that there are other examples, though, right? South Africa, South if I remember, yeah, it might have been right. before my time, but like they gave up their before our time. Program. But I think you're right. Yeah, um, I don't remember the details of that. But uh, but so the basic question: Is there going to be a summit? Do you believe there will be a summit? I would put the odds a lot higher than I did just a few weeks ago. I think we might actually see something, especially if Pompeo actually met with Kim Jong Un. Yeah. Um, so my money is. Um, on yes right now, believe it or not. I have to tell you, while I was waiting uh, in line, uh, we, we were all waiting for the East Room of the White House to open up yesterday so we could get inside. Um, I was talking with a North Korean reporter. She's got great sources in North Korea. and, and A North Korean reporter? Uh, well, a Korean reporter, sorry, oh, South Korea. Okay. But has oh, great my God. So- I was no, like, no, how no. did you? Okay. All no, right. has great sources in North Korea and has interviewed the head of the negotiating team, the, okay. the, the North, the head of the North Korean troops in the DMZ, okay, mm-hmm. uh, showed me her picture with him, right? So, and she said she's got great source. She said it's down to from they talked about one of five countries, one of five locations. They're down to two now. Did did she say which ones? I couldn't get it out of her. Oh. Man, I tried. My money's on Mongolia. She said not Mongolia. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. man. I was yeah. really looking forward to everybody having to pronounce Ulaanbaatar. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine Trump saying that. <laughs> Just imagine Trump saying that. Imagine him getting there. Well, could Kim Jong-un get there by train? Um, no, I could, no, you'd have to cross the... No, you have, there's some water there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of my... Think no, so. you could probably. If he got to Beijing by train, he could get to Mongolia I by think train. Sure. Mongolia is between India and China, right? So... No, that's Tibet. Wait. 
Oh my god, this is terrible. Terribly embarrassing. North. Can we mm-hmm. edit this part out? Like, yeah. terrible. <laughs> we're, we're gonna edit the geography B portion. Oh, of show today. No, Don't I'm worry. sorry, Russia, Russia, right? This is yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Because right. it's like a democracy, and the you know, and I, I know more about Mongolia than I'm than I might sound like I do right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, well, there will. Do you believe there will be a summit? Yes. Okay. But I also thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency. Okay, got it. Okay. I, I, I answer a lot of questions. Let with me that, give you though. an easier one. <laughs> Will Mike Pompeo be the next Secretary of State? Yes. By the end of the week? Uh, yes. I, were, I think the vote's planned for tomorrow. And uh, he's got what he needs. Um, and I just hope that he offers me an interview because I'm very excited about tackling a new Secretary of State on my beat. So, Mr. Um, Pompeo. <laughs> he's a big fan of the show. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> um, and we know he got there, be- and the president went out of his way yesterday to praise Rand Paul, and he said that uh, Rand Paul has uh, here he is. Ne- Rand Paul's never let me down. Rand Paul is a good man, and I knew things that nobody else knew. And Rand Paul said, "I'm going to change my vote," and he voted, and everybody was surprised. Wait, what did he know about Rand that nobody else? No, he knew things about Mike Pompeo. Oh, that I, nobody else knew, and that's what he's alleging that he told Rand Paul. Oh, no, Pompeo has really changed his position on Iraq or whatever other issues that he knew, and uh, and we heard Rand Paul say the day before at the committee hearing, "I've changed my mind, and I'm going to vote for him." Yeah, yeah I I still think there's probably way more to that story than people realize. I it was surprising to people. Rand t- does tend to stick to his guns, so the fact that he changed his mind at the last minute is uh, pretty right. shocking. Uh, and you've written about uh, not a lot of time, but I did want to f- find out more about this State Department report that was squashed on civil civil liberties. Or tell us about that. No, uh, are you talking about the human rights report? Yeah, right. Okay, and some of the changes that were made this year? Yeah. Yes, I broke the story uh, a few weeks back. Uh, basically, this time around, they uh, in the new human rights report, um, they severely shrunk the space devoted to family planning and women's reproductive rights. Um, and they also uh, cut out references to, like, discrimination in other countries by non-government entities against, you know, LGBT or others. So... It's it, they decided basically to remove really anything about abortion or or broader uh, societal influences uh, in some of these countries or in countries around the world, and that meant that they had to uh, they they released the report late, and there's a lot of controversy over uh, the changes. They a lot of human rights organizations feel like it's not an adequate representation, and they're worried that this report, which is used by a lot of people, I mean lawmakers, researchers, asylum seekers. You know, like just it's used as a a reference. They're worried that it's going to be politicized uh, and misleading under the Trump administration. They also made one other change that was really noticeable. Um, Instead of referring to it as Israel and the occupied territories, they severely cut back the use of occupied. Instead, (laughs) they they just refer to it as Israel, the Golan Heights, the West Bank and Gaza. Um, And that that was really a striking change. Because Israel doesn't like that area being referred to as occupied territories because they do not admit that they are the occupiers of someone else's land. You know, I think the U.S., the Trump administration has really gone out of its way to show that there's not a lot of daylight between it and the Israeli government. And I think this was something that will definitely make the Israelis happy. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, this, this to me strikes a parallel with what we see 
uh, at the Department of Energy, what we see at the EPA in the climate change area, where they're not allowed to use the word climate, climate change, change, right? Yeah. Alleged, or science or kind of whatever. They have to mask everything. And they're renaming whole department uh, offices within those agencies, right, to get anything to do with climate change or global warming, those words, out. Well, so, it's really striking because I think the administration has really come to very, understand the well power in. of words. Yeah. You know, simply yeah. like language and how it shapes the way people think and prioritize things. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot, there's a lot to be said in using certain words, and there's a lot to be said when they just avoid using certain words. It definitely can change the dialogue, and I think they've really come to understand that. Mm -hmm. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> well, very exciting time for you. I'm a new Secretary of State. We didn't even get a chance to talk about Rex, the, the late, great Rex Tillerson, uh, <clears throat> who slinked out of there and with not a lot of glory. Maybe anyway. he'll write a memoir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Would that he sell so many as many books as James Comey has. <laughs> now, Tuesday from Politico is Politico.com. What's, what's the Supreme Court up to? A lot of important stuff. Elizabeth Wider will bring us up to date on that. Coming up next. Thanks, Nahal. Always good to see you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. me. We'll be right back. Quick break. We'll be right back. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. Make it a Wednesday, April 25, 2018. Hello, everybody. The Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us today. Lots and lots to talk about, as you can tell, uh, on many different fronts. It looks like Ronnie Jackson, the White House physician nominated by Donald Trump to be the new Secretary of Veterans Affairs, may not make it, and uh, if he doesn't, He's got nobody to blame but Donald Trump, number one, for appointing him in the first place without doing any vetting, uh, and number two, for uh, throwing him under the bus yesterday. Now, I know late in the day, um, <clears throat> so let's back up a little bit. We reported yesterday uh, that there was supposed to be a hearing this week, uh, and Ronnie Jackson was going to be confirmed and was going to be all over. And then uh, we heard again yesterday, we mentioned that suddenly some new uh, information had come forward. We weren't sure what it was, uh, but it was enough that the Republican chair of the committee uh, said, we better uh, put this hearing off because we got to look into a couple of things. So they put the hearing off and Donald Trump was asked about it yesterday about these new allegations at the uh, news conference that he had with uh, President Macron of France, uh, I was there. Uh, and the president, first of all, said, I don't know what anything about these new allegations, but um, I want to tell you I have never met a more honest man. One of the best people I ever met is Ronnie Jackson. However, the president went on to say, uh, I talked to him earlier today, and I said, what do you want to do this for? It's crazy. You shouldn't do this any longer. If I were you, I wouldn't do it. Here's uh, President Trump. I really don't think personally he should do it, but it's totally his. I would stand behind him. Totally his decision. Yeah. And he asked and he told him, and the president repeated this over and over again. I told Admiral Jackson just a little while ago, I said, what do you need this for? This is a vicious group of people. A vicious group of people. What do you need this for? Again, he said that over and over. What do you need this for? What do you need this for? I was standing there. I kept writing it down. 
And then finally the president said, well, it's up to him. He'll make his decision. But if I were him? If I were him? Actually, in many ways, I'd love to be him. But the fact is, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, that's not a very ringing endorsement. I wouldn't do it. And then later in the day, almost 180 degrees from what he said there, the president met with uh, Dr. Jackson in the Oval Office, and then the White House issued a statement saying that for now, Dr. Jackson is not re- withdrawing his name, and the president is 100% behind him. Uh, trying to have it both ways, but I feel I have to say, uh, based on that, uh, I don't see how uh, the Dr. Jackson, I don't see how the Senate could ever confirm him. Uh, and I think it's pretty clear the president would prefer if he withdrew his name. And for the record, the uh, uh, other information that has come forward from at least 20, 20, 20 plus people uh, who have come to the Senate and reported that there were serious problems of um, a hostile working environment at the White House in the doctor's office, number one. Uh, Number two, that he, Dr. Jackson, uh, was known for walking down the aisle of planes when they were traveling with the president and just handing out drugs left and right, Ambien and other drugs, depending on whether people wanted to stay awake or go to sleep. My kind of doctor. Uh, Yeah, your kind of doctor. Uh, Just like the flight attendant first came through with peanuts or, or pretzels, and then Dr. Jackson followed with, Ambien or what else you might prefer. Uh, what do we have here? We have peanuts, pretzels, or, uppers, downers. What do you need? Yeah, right. What do you want? Uh, and thirdly, perhaps the most troubling is there were, again, over 20 people came forward to say that on the road particularly, uh, he had a drinking problem. And at one point, uh, Doctor, I mean, President Obama uh, needed um, to see the doctor, and they went to the doctor's room, and he was passed out drunk on his bed. Another time, the Secret Service had to interrupt him when he was drunk and banging on the door uh, of a female who was on the trip, some woman's door, hotel room. So um, troubling stuff on Dr. Jackson. I don't think he will ever make it. But let's put that aside. We'll see what happens. Uh, And uh, nothing happened on the Supreme Court front at all. Man, they have more important issues they've decided to tackle this year, it seems, than I can remember all at once here. And Elizabeth Weidrip from the Constitutional Accountability Center joining us in studio. Elizabeth, it's always good to see you. Great to see you, Bill. Yeah, it's a busy time, huh? Uh, it sure is. Yeah, yeah, this is, you know, I feel like okay. every year I say it's a blockbuster Supreme Court term. This is like a multi-blockbuster Supreme right. Court term. Okay, now before we get into some of the stuff that's pending, we yep. haven't seen you since Neil Gorsuch surprised the hell out of everybody Oh yes, by actually voting with the four liberal members of the court mm-hmm. for the very first time on an important immigration issue. Did you see this coming, and what does it mean? Well, so it, it isn't terrifically surprising because while it is an immigration issue, this had to do with whether something was a deportable offense for uh, a man from the Philippines. Uh, it was really about vagueness of criminal statutes and Mm-hmm. Neil Gorsuch's predecessor, Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, was very much a strong advocate of ensuring that Congress was clear when it passed criminal law. So he wrote uh, this decision on which the most recent immigration decision was based, uh, Johnson, which was about Armed Career Criminals Act and uh, whether or not that had to be more specific. And so I wasn't terribly surprised. I think Scalia would have voted this way. 
because it hmm. simply is this conservative libertarian idea that in order to hold someone uh, responsible for a criminal act, Congress or uh, the state or whoever is passing the criminal law has to give you sufficient notice that what you're doing is going to be criminal. And so the it's law a vagueness has to be doctrine. clear, right? Exactly. And yeah. so, frankly, I was surprised more conservatives didn't vote that way mm. because, you know, it isn't it isn't necessarily on that issue a liberal versus conservative issue. But I am pleased for the immigration consequences here that he did join the more liberal justices. Um, does that indicate that we might expect to see him on that side of the aisle more often or— you know, is this an aberration? I mean, I would hope so, but I'm not holding my breath. You know, this was very much in line, again, with what Scalia would have done. And we certainly didn't see Scalia very often join with the liberals, uh, although sometimes yeah. on criminal procedure, like like in like in this case. So this right. fits in that kind of conservative libertarian line. Um, you know, last term we saw from Justice Gorsuch very conservative opinions. So. You know, the big tests are coming. The big tests mm -hmm. are coming this term about whether he is actually going to stick to the law, whether he's going to stick to his originalism about the meaning of the Constitution, whether he's going to defer to states and to Congress, as he said he would, or whether he's going to strike down a litany of programs and laws that uh, really, if he follows what he said he would do in his confirmation hearings, he really shouldn't. So, um Another issue, we'll get to the court in a second, that just happened last evening. Um, Judge John Burns, the mm. U.S. District uh, Federal Court here in Washington, D.C., uh, a man appointed by George W. Bush, I keep pointing out, um, ruled that DACA mm -hmm. um, should go forward, uh, not only accepting renewals, but accepting new ap applicants to DACA. Uh, total contradiction to what um, the Trump administration has said. In yeah. fact, he called uh, the Trump decision to end the program capricious and arbitrary, yeah. that they showed no compelling need to end it, so that it was uh, basically an invalid action. Now, he delayed his decision for 90 days to mm -hmm. let the administration appeal, um, but this is a pretty blockbuster ruling, isn't it? It's a big deal because yeah. we, we had one other ruling that said that um, – uh, people who were already in the program, um, that, that DACA was on hold, again, because it was an arbitrary and capricious mm -hmm. decision to withdraw it. Uh, but this ruling really goes even further, as you said, because it allows new applications as well. Um, so, you know, I think that it's a it's a really big deal. You know, Judge Bates is not known as this, you know, wild Bates, liberal, I, liberal yeah. judge. He, you know, is really just saying, look, we expect even in the Trump era, <laughs> that the executive goes through the proper procedures when it makes policy. And here they claimed at, on the one hand that DACA was unlawful and that's why they were withdrawing it. But then they also said, you know, uh, you probably remember when Trump said, yeah, if Congress doesn't do anything about it, maybe I'll reinstate it. Well, which is it? Um, yeah, and I would say yeah. perhaps even more important, um, it's obviously a lawful action. You know, the president has the authority to make priorities of uh, immigration enforcement. And President Obama properly saw that these young people who came to the country to uh, make our country better and make their own lives better um, and really are a benefit to our communities uh, should not be priorities in deportation because they've passed a strict background test. They have jobs. They are really shining examples of what Americans 
are and should be. And so uh, that is completely within the president's discretion. And so it's a it's very much a lawful program. And the Trump administration couldn't give any good reason to withdraw it. And now we see the judiciary fulfilling their obligation to be a check on the president and uh, saying, no, you can't do that. Right. Uh, the judge also said uh, in terms of so what he's seen so far from the Trump administration, he called it meager legal reasoning. Yes, I think that is actually kind. <laughs> and I will say, you know, Trump's career lawyers in the Department of Justice are doing their level best, but the president does not make it easy for them. That's for sure. Yeah. It also we say, say this, it's, it's kind of could be seen as an invitation to Congress to just come up and make this program permanent, legal, give it official status, right? Oh, come on. I mean, they need to pass a clean DREAM Act. It's, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. a, again, these young people are the best of America. And the idea that they haven't done that when the vast majority of Americans support passing a clean DREAM Act is is just irresponsible. So now we have, uh, let's get to the core, the travel ban. Yes. Is back up soon? They uh, in uh, at, at 10 a.m. today. Uh, oh, all so. right. That's pretty soon. Yes. <laughs> I'll be heading there right after we're done. 10 a.m. East Coast time. <laughs> yes. Right? Hour, and, hour and 10 minutes from now. Um, and is that, they've considered this before. So uh, uh, tell us about this particular uh, so issue. today is the last day of Supreme Court arguments for this particular term, um, although they will, of course, be issuing decisions all the way to the end of June. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this is certainly a blockbuster to end on. This is the first time that the Supreme Court will really be hearing the merits of the travel ban. They have considered before these emergency requests on whether or not to let it go into effect during right. the challenges. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, the last time they uh, just in the fall, I believe, they decided to, the Supreme Court decided to allow the travel ban, the third version, mm -hmm. to go into effect while the legal challenges were pending. Um, but they have never actually considered the merit. So that's what we'll see today. And it will be really interesting to see what the judges, justices ask in oral argument because, you know, here we have a proclamation from the president that is a follow through on his campaign promise to ban Muslims from entering the country. That's exactly what he did with this order. And we have a conservative Supreme Court who professes to be uh, uh, vigorous in their defense of religious liberty. Well, this is a clear uh, discrimination on the basis of religion here. And so the White House is arguing, as I, uh, I understand, among other arguments, that um, this is not a travel ban. Mm hmm even though the president said what he wanted and what he delivered was a travel ban. Exactly. Right. So is it a ban or not a ban? Right. So in, so the Trump's statements could come home to haunt him or at least haunt his legal team. Oh, absolutely. And again, this is, you know, uh, some of the lawyers who are making these arguments are, are very good lawyers, but their client <laughs> makes it really hard for them because, yeah, they want to come into court and say, oh, no, we're concerned about national security. This has nothing to do with religion. Uh, but then you have Trump saying, you know, yeah, I wanted to get a Muslim ban in place. And so I asked my lawyers, how do I do that to make it look OK? And this right. is what I came yeah. up with. Yeah. So, I mean, he, we've been over this so many times at the, at the White House briefings. The, uh, and that was in Sean Spicer's day. There's no doubt. I mean, before and after it was done, the president called it a ban. Yes, absolutely. To use that word. 
And, you know, that's his comments are important. So uh, the Supreme Court has held over and over that when you're considering whether a certain policy or practice is discriminatory, the context in which that policy was created matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's why President Trump's tweets and his statements all are relevant to this inquiry, because, you know, you could have. uh, you know, you could have you rarely have evidence, frankly, uh, this clear that something was passed with discriminatory intent in, intent. So they have to I'm just looking in terms of a timetable. Um, they hear oral arguments today. This is the they'll have a month really to write this decision. Yes. Yeah. And I suspect this one, you know, of course, to make you, it and to write it. Right. right. Yeah. You know, you never know. The Supreme Court can do whatever it wants. <laughs> I suspect this one will be well, two the, months end of June. Yeah, right? the very end of June, because it's an it's an incredibly important case. And they're hearing that on the last day of arguments. So I would suspect this one will come out probably the very last day of the term. All in right. June. So the Trump administration are the defendants, right? Yes. Who are the plaintiffs? So in this case, so there have been many, many lawsuits filed right, against right. this um, unlawful ban. This particular case is brought by the state of Hawaii, who is claiming that uh, this discriminatory ban affects its uh, students, students who want to come to its public educational institutions, um, its economy, that people who are uh, coming here to uh, work in important jobs that we need immigrants to uh, you know, use their incredible talents to fill, and that it affects their constituents because they uh, have family are there members. Other states that are joining Hawaii? So many other states have supported Hawaii. Um, Hawaii is the plaintiff in this particular case. And it will be, what, the Hawaii attorney general who will argue the case? So Neil Katyal, who was the acting solicitor general for uh, President Obama, will be arguing on behalf of Hawaii. Oh. And, you know, he... Uh, he famously, perhaps, uh, apologized on behalf of the federal government for um, the Solicitor General's role in convincing the court to uphold the internment of Japanese Americans in the Korematsu case. And so I think the fact that he's arguing this case shows that the court doesn't want to be, again, on the wrong side of history when it comes to discriminatory actions against people who have immigrated to this country or would like to immigrate to this country. So he, he, what is his role again with the um, Japanese internment? So he, when he was acting solicitor general under, under Obama, yeah. he took it upon himself to speak for the government, obviously with President Obama's authorization, to apologize for any role that the Solicitor General's office had in misleading the Supreme Court about the effects and the reasons for the internment of Japanese Americans uh, during World War II, which was upheld by the Supreme Court as lawful. But but not his office as Oh, solicitor. gosh, no. It was no, uh, yeah. in the past, yeah. Hmm. But I think it shows that, you know, we have had dark moments in our history and we passed a law in 1965 in the Immigration and Naturalization Act that said immigration law cannot discriminate on the basis of nationality. You know, we have seen that before in certainly the treatment of Japanese Americans, but also at the end of the uh, 19th century, excluding Chinese people from coming to this country. And in 1965, we said clearly, no, you cannot do that. It has to be, if you're going to exclude someone, it has to be based on something they've done rather than simply where they're born. 
And so not only is the travel ban in this instance unconstitutional because it's a discrimination on the basis of religion, it's also frankly just unlawful under the governing immigration statutes because, mm. you know, Trump supporters like to say, oh, immigration law gives him, you know, uh, unfettered discretion. Well, no, it gives him very broad discretion, but we have parameters. And one of those is this 1965 immigration statute that says you cannot discriminate on the basis on of the nationality. Ba on the basis of nationality, right. Uh, the Supreme Court recently heard arguments on, related to, um, and this, this kind of uh, ties back to Donald Trump's attacks on Amazon, mm. related to uh, Internet companies charging sales tax. Yes, yeah, um, you know, this issue has been around a long time, and I remember uh, debating it with with friends years ago about whether or not if you buy on the internet, you should have to pay the state sales tax. Mm -hmm. Right, and you know, uh, there are a lot of the Supreme Court hears a lot of cases. Um, you know, some cases are really big and affect our values and our neighbors, um, and some cases maybe uh, aren't as big in terms of constitutional principles, but affect our pocketbooks. And that and certainly one sure is one does. of them. Absolutely. Right. I mean, think, so, of, think of how many things you buy on Amazon. I feel like I get a package every day. So who are the two sides in this thing? Right. Yeah. So you have, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, folks who, frankly, a lot of states who are interested in getting that sales tax. And then you also have, you know, competitors of Amazon who think they're getting an unfair break. Right. But Amazon does collect the sales tax. In, in states. Correct, Peter? I remember Bezos. I mean, some some don't. I think Amazon Amazon don't, didn't always. Sure. Yes. But now they do. Yeah. I don't want to speak on behalf of Amazon. No, Amazon does. <laughs> Amazon does, but not all Amazon, states do the state tax stuff. Yeah, yeah right. And um, and so there are businesses, so some businesses say if you, if they have to pay the sales tax, then they'd go out of business. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there's a Which big... I find to be a strange argument, you know. I mean, look at they Amazon. They collect sales taxes, but they don't pay taxes, so... <laughs> there you go. Yeah, right. One way or the other, they're right. cheating on their taxes, right? <laughs> but it seems to me if you can't sell a product and then pay the sales tax in that state, you ought to go out of business. I don't know. I'm not on the court, but <laughs> I think it's a hard, hard argument to make. But I used to argue just the other side, because as a consumer... right. I buy a lot of stuff online, and I think and thought it was great not to have to pay the tax. But <laughs> right. but the fair part is, yes. if, if you're selling a product in that state that has a sales tax, right. unlike Delaware, which has no sales tax, state has a sales tax. Everybody, it seems to me, in that state selling products should have to pay. Right. I mean, I think Amazon thinks of itself as this, you know, uh, uh, floating in the ether. Uh, magically uh, procuring right. boxes <laughs> at your doorstep. Any indication from oral arguments, although we've talked before how you cannot read too much yeah. into oral arguments, but was there any indication whether the, how the justices would split on this one? You know, I wasn't at that argument, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I can't think based on their previous rulings that there would be a clear... Uh, delineation mm -hmm. of where they would go in the future based on that. Could, could you know, maybe right. it depends on how much uh, they order from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, that, that could. Uh, there's another reapportionment case in front of them. Yes. Texas. Mm -hmm. and we, we've seen state courts rule in North Carolina, mm -hmm. in uh, Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin. Well, this, the Wisconsin case is front, and yes. now Texas too, right? Yeah, so just this term alone, we have a gerrymandering case out of Wisconsin, 
and Maryland. Uh, and then we have this right, case out yeah. of Texas, which is about uh, racial uh, line drawing um, in drawing districts. So this is a major theme of the court's term, you know, whether mm-hmm. um, or not in our democracy, it's the voters who choose their leaders uh, rather than elected officials choosing their voters. Uh, that's a huge issue in the Wisconsin and Maryland cases. And that has to do with partisanship, drawing lines on partisan lines. Right, right. Uh, but they could totally revamp the way district lines are drawn Absolutely. in this country. You know, Absolutely. With some guidelines that would say it has to be done by some independent commission, perhaps not by the politicians. We'll see how far uh, they are willing to go. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you're going to get your seat, you better get... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you, better be- you better get moving. <laughs> the Constitutionality Center, it's theconstitution.org, Elizabeth The U.S. Constitution.org. The U.S. Constitution.org. We've got a new website. Check show. it out.